0: So, without further ado, let's get uh, some, of the, uh, some of these esteemed panelists introduce themselves. So, over the far, my far left, Mr. Rohan Murthy, name, rank, zero number.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Morning, my name is Rohan, I'm the founder and CTO of Soroko We are a technology company headquartered between London, Boston and Bangalore. Good, good, good. And
0: I won't tell anyone who your brother-in-law is, I promise. <laughs> Completely <laughs> irrelevant.
2: Excellent. I'm, and I'm, I'm Keshav. That's K and a shout out of the room. <laughs> and I'm the CEO of uh, a company called WNS Global. And people often ask me what WNS stands for. And it's evolved across the years, but right now it's it stands for winning never stops. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'm Leslie Wilcox, I'm a professor at London School of Economics and Political Science in the management field. I've been researching global sourcing with that lady there, Mary Latterty, for many years, decades, in fact. And um, more recently, I've been looking at automation digital transformation and maintaining that research stream, and I'll be able to talk a little bit about that today.
0: Excellent.
4: Hi, I'm Carol. Um, Phil, thanks for inviting me along today, and it's lovely to see some old friends. And so, well done on getting us all together in London. Um, when last I saw a lot of you, I worked with Capgemini and I was on the supplier side delivering BPO, talking to Phil about how we were going to use automation to transform how we did things. Um, since then, I've now worked for a company called Aquarian. Um Effectively, I've gone back to the other side to actually deliver for Acorian. For, for, for so, I'm the COO at Acorian. I look after transformation technology and operations. So, I'm really here today to, well, one, represent what's possible to do in a small company and how technology really makes a difference to our clients, but also to learn from you guys. So, I'm more in listening mode than trying to sell you something. I actually want to hear what you have to say (laughs) for a change.
5: (laughs) There we go. Mr. am I'm I'm John. Um, I will try and sell you something if you need any (laughs) insurance. Um, I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for Zurich, UK. Um, That's interesting. I guess, but in my previous five years, I started that role midway through 22. Uh, I was the COO for uh, Zurich in the UK. So many of the things that Phil was talking about this morning are very familiar to me. (laughs) Tiger.
6: Tiger, I won't won't bore you with trying to pronounce my last name. Uh, (laughs) CEO of Genpak, now based in London for the last uh, three years. Uh, decided that in the middle of the pandemic was the right time to move uh, from one continent to another. And Phil, delighted to be here. Uh, I don't know how you make it happen, that in spite of all my travels, I end up landing up in every one
0: of your the <laughs> sessions. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Oh. Mr Radha, it's great to have you here.
7: Thanks. Thanks, Phil. Uh, thanks for the invite. Folks, I'm uh, Radha. I'm the CEO and MD at uh, Infosys PPM, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Infosys. The CEO stands for Chief Empathy Officer.
0: <laughs> Chief Empathy. Fantastic. There we go. So without further ado then, let's uh, let's get into some let's get into some conversation about um, enterprise leaders, you know, who's gonna succeed and who's gonna fail as we tackle this global assault and everything that we we once knew as stable. Maybe Leslie, you wanna kick us off here
3: sorry what was the question
0: Um, (laughs) that one it's that one there. enterprise (laughs) leaders who's going to fail who's going to succeed as we tackle our global assault on everything
3: yeah we just done research because I was absolutely puzzled about where we were all going (laughs) and uh, I delayed writing a book which I called globalization automation and work prospects and challenges because I couldn't get my brain around the globalization bit and you did a good job here, but I'm a bit more radical than you. And I think you have to understand context before you can answer that question. No. And the context is that the level of complexity, dynamism, and interconnectivity is now so high that we are in an unprecedented and distinctive place where the uncertainty, the, the level of risk, and the un- unanticipated outcomes are, are massive. And I call this not the new normal, the new abnormal.
7: Mm-hmm. And
3: I think that COVID-19 was a, was a forerunner to what is going to happen in the future and uh, the way that we can respond to that. And it's a very difficult world to manage. And uh, so, I mean, um, I, I, I've got it in for forecasters. Uh, Mary and I always have a joke about uh, futurists. Who appear at co- conferences, and uh, increasingly we, we believe that they're very good for corporate entertainment. <laughs> but uh, in terms of predicting the future, they're less useful than more traditional methods like uh, looking at the stars, uh, reading tea leaves, and perhaps the good tried and tested one of r- reading t- uh, chicken entrails. Uh, and <laughs> the other thing that doesn't seem to work is faith-based economics. The idea, th- and Britain is a... a prime example of this Uh, bottom of the league but faith-based economics where you 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 think that the markets going to help uh, help us and we're all going to end up in the right place eventually it's not working like that And this is not a context in which we operate so um, what's going to work is more anticipation more resilience in organizations and one of my favourite cartoons, I'll stop in a minute, Phil, I realise that these are much more experienced people than me. Anyway, one of my favourite cartoons, which is above my desk, is um, there are two, two men on spikes. They're at the Tower of London down this way, and the date is about 1743. They're on spikes because they've been traitors, and people are throwing rotten fruit at them. And one of the head turns to the other and says, I think it's time for plan B. So I think there's going to be a lot more plan A's, plan B's, and plan C's in the future. And the organisations that don't do that are going to run into real problems. I can, you can come back to me for <laughs> more recent research on that, but I, I think I'll stop there.
0: Interesting. I mean, Carol, what do you think? You're plan A, plan B, plan C? Who's going to succeed and who's going to fail? I, I'm trying to
4: remember when everything was stable. Yeah. Because I think you know, that we all are sometimes victims of recency. So what we used to th- thought was stable was never stable. So kind of going back to your friends that were on spikes, you know, if we, you know, looking backwards, things are always changing. Yeah. And I suppose even just if you go back to evolution, cause you're always very thought provoking, so you kind of got me thinking. So I suppose the reality is we all have to be ready. The classic evolutionary requirement, adapt or die. So I think the organizations that are able to adapt are the ones that are always going to be most successful, whatever that means, different things at different times. Um, I suppose the how do you adapt is the question. I, I would agree looking forward is difficult. So I wonder if the key to it is also being more closely connected within your ecosystem, as you're talking about, Phil,
7: yeah. and within
4: your communities, because then you will learn from your, from the people that you're working with, from your customers, from your suppliers. So I think it's always about learn from everyone. So yeah. adapt or die, that's, that, that's ad, never going to ad, change.
0: Adapt or die
4: very heartwarming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's your perspective uh, from India, Radha?
7: So, I think uh, I'd like to use a recent uh, analogy, the RRR. I don't know how many of you have heard this, uh, which one and the song from RRR earned an Oscar. Uh, For me, the three R's matter in this uh, situation. The first R has really been relevant. Every day, finding that relevance with the stakeholders, whether it's the customer, whether it's the supplier in your ecosystem, your employees, staying relevant to them as a leader is going to be very, very important. Second aspect is about responsiveness, your ability to respond to change and do this with acknowledging your vulnerability in a very authentic way is going to help uh, enterprises in this uncertain environment. The third, uh, clearly, is about resilience. And uh, doing these three R's and being rather, I need to give the fourth R too, which is respect. Whatever you do, you bring respect in that equation, uh, whether it's with the governments you operate with, with the employees. So, these four R's as an enterprise leader would help you create some kind of a template to cope with this level of uncertainty and dynamism uh, in the marketplace.
0: Okay. Thank you. So, as you can see, these are the headwinds that we're talking about impacting us. Um, So, let's think a bit more about adapting to this new recessionary world uh, post-pandemic. You know, what is going to work? What do we have to do here? Maybe Tiger, you want to share some thoughts?
6: So I just want to connect the previous question and the answers that everyone gave to this one, which is, and, and, and I agree with all the responses, I think one leaders should stop trying to predict the future. I think forever now we must understand that we are in a new world, and the new world is a connected world. By definition, in a connected world, when, when there's an earthquake somewhere, I'm, I'm talking about a metaphorical earthquake, a change, it's felt everywhere immediately. In an unconnected world, you can have an earthquake in one place, and you'll read about it, but you won't feel it. In a connected world, every earthquake is felt everywhere. I don't know if people know, but there are about 100 earthquakes a day in the world, in general, which means every day you're going to feel change. So therefore leaders and today's enterprises have to think about, I'm not here to predict tomorrow. Don't even ask me the question. I refuse to answer. Uh, I'm here to create plan A, plan B, plan C, It's call it a scenario planning, and if this happens, this is our response. If that happens, that's our response. Which means you gotta be flexible enough to move in five different directions. Four of them are opposite of each other. So how do you do that? Variabilization of everything, I think, is gonna be one direction everyone has to go in. Yeah. Which means ecosystem, which means partners, which means connected technologies, which means diverse thing. I mean, so many things fit into that. So agility, flexibility, variabilization, uh, and then the ability to sense, because yes, there are 100 earthquakes, can you sense it one second before you feel it? If you sense it, then you'll respond to it with either plan C or plan D. So that's what we think about both enterprises in this world. And I don't think about it as a new recessionary world. I think it could be recessionary. But my view is that there are going to be times when it will become hyper growth overnight. The problem is it's going to be overnight. So people are going to get left, left stranded with Oh my God, I wish I had planned for this demand. Now I'm going to miss it. My competitor has capacity, so he or she is going to
0: capture it. Right, and you think ecosystems is the best way to... Yeah. The more you broaden out your conversations, (laughs) the more you... Okay. And then... um, But I'll be clinging more to the rules of the past. Um,
7: (laughs) 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 Leading question.
0: It's a leading question.
2: Maybe... uh,
0: Keshav, are we clinging to the rules of the past too much, you feel, or...?
2: So, Phil, that's an interesting question. So, personally, the way I'm seeing, you know, our clients interact with us and respond is taking leadership, right? Uh, So, I think a lot of the stuff that we discussed at this point in time is something that is not quite obvious, uh, you know, to to everyone. You know, change is a constant, the fact that people are looking to come up with new, agile and resilient uh, kind of models and In my view, putting that famous word that you used earlier, digital transformation, at the center of everything that they they want to do. But while doing all of this, I think they're also very conscious of all the other assets available around them that uh, you you can actually leverage in order to go from point A to point B. So things like what are the new areas of technology you know, in terms of intelligent automation that consists of so many other things that, you know, people want to leverage. What are the new interesting things that are being spoken about? You know, we keep talking about Advent and we're talking about now ChatGPT and Metaverse and things like that people are all talking about, you know, how can you guys help me uh, in terms of building a stickier relationship with my end customers or are creating impact with my customers, you know, leveraging all of this. But while doing all of this, I'm also seeing that most of them are also trying to carry their people with them, right? I think that is very, very critical. Uh, you know, somewhere in your presentation, you spoke, out, you spoke about uh, you know, autonomous models. The reality is everyone is trying to understand what are those repeatable tasks and those tasks that actually can be replaced by machines and technology and software and whatever else. And more importantly, how do they elevate their talent to new areas, you know, yeah. while while doing you know, all of this, and creating an ecosystem and an environment where everyone is now working you know, together. Uh, that's one. And while doing all of this, I think people are also focused on the fact that you can't, uh, you know, you, you have to create a, an ecosystem where you are you know, positioning emotional intelligence, empathy. You know, again, rather used that word earlier. As, as you know uh, as potential game changers. so you're carrying technology, you're carrying a new business model, you're carrying you know your people with you and you're co- continuously focused on what are all these new technologies that are around you which you can leverage to give a better experience to your end customer and transform you know your end customer. So I actually think that you know people are you know voting you know very well in terms of you know uh, grappling with this uh, this new model and if you are not, your toast.
0: <laughs> I, I was very eloquently but thank you, Kesha. And um, yeah, I mean, we're struggling with a lot of things as we as we spoke about. So um, maybe uh, Rohan, at the end there, you're you know you've come from a services family, but you're pushing a technology solution that transforms work at this moment in time. Do you feel that companies are embracing this, or they're still clinging? Clinging to the past and how they how they do things.
1: So a couple of things, Phil. So first I come from an academic family, seven generations of <laughs> teachers, just to be precise, uh, with one anomaly. Um, so my background is I previously I did my PhD in Boston. I used to teach uh at students, I used to do research, etc., published papers and so on. All in computer science, Indian glasses, computer science makes sense. Um, and there's something very interesting that, and over the last couple of years, the only corporate job or rather the only time I spent in the corporate world is essentially building the company that I build right now. Right. And we have customers who are mostly Fortune 500 or their equivalent counterparts in Europe. And what I've learned, I constantly contrast with what I used to find with my students in academia. And the one constant question that I've had, and I think Phil, it goes to point number two on this particular slide, as well as something, as well as some of the other things that other folks have said, is um, I used to constantly poll students, asking them, "Hey, when you graduate, how many of you are going to go work for an insurance company?" I used to teach students um, studying computer science, right, the same place where Mark Zuckerberg and all these these cool kids studied. Uh, how many of you will join a bank? That's not Goldman Sachs. That's probably the only exception. How many of you will join an insurance company? How many of you will join a manufacturing company? That's not Apple. Um, And so on and so forth. And almost never could I get any student to say, I'm going to join one of these companies. Yes, my dream is to work at an insurance broking company and helping them build technology. And so I used to always wonder as to, you know, these are all important companies, important industries. So who is actually going to help them be more relevant with technology? Now, for sure, there are some services companies who will say, we are the right people, no doubt. But that alone can't be the answer. right? I mean, every company, in my limited opinion and my limited experience, to be relevant has to understand technology at a certain fundamental level in their DNA. And if you're not going to be able to attract, because all the cool kids want to land up in the valley, want to build open AI, want to be at Google, want to be at Amazon, maybe Microsoft, I don't know, cetera and so on, or startups, uh, technology companies. So I used to constantly wonder, and I still continue to wonder, and I see this still with our customers too, um, very often is you know when you're sitting across the table, who on the other side is actually able to help them understand what's happening outside? Apart from all the buzzwords, I'm not going to use words like AI or any of these things. right? If you really get down to the specific details, and and a very specific case in in point, I actually think ChatGPT is incredibly scary. And if people are not scared enough, you need to be. And any of my friends here, Radha, I've known Radha for 18 years, 20 years now, since I probably was in high school in Bangalore. and Radha and I have had a lot of debates and discussions back in the day. In 2013, we were standing outside Infosys BPO gate and arguing about automation. right? Um, ChatGPT, it can pass a high school biology exam, a college biology exam. My friend who is a professor at Princeton Biology, this is a professor at Princeton. He's able to give his exam in biology and genetics to Chad GPD, and it scores 98 on 100. These are smart students at Princeton, no less than Cambridge or Oxford and so on. And that is so scary. And so I keep wondering who in all of these companies is able to help them understand this is what technology is going to do to your business. Until it's too late. Or before it's too late, sorry. (laughs) Um, And I actually think, therefore, your point number two to me is screaming. And it always has been screaming as the biggest issue, at least the way I see the world. Um, and I constantly wonder, how will companies continue to attract or can they attract the kind of talent they need to stay relevant in this increasingly scary world?
0: Yeah.
5: That's amazing, isn't it? So um... Should I respond to that on behalf of the insurance industry? <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> that was a damning indictment of my career, right
1: there. <laughs> um, I, I, I hope I'm not coming off as damning anyway. No, 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 no.
0: I, I, Well maybe, maybe Johnny, you can tell us what the world's going to look like when we emerge from these.
5: I definitely t-times. cannot do that. Um, <laughs> and, and so I will instead answer the previous questions <laughs> because it's way easier. Uh, so I, I, the thing I think about question two, is that an organisation that solved question one will have already solved question two. Right. Like. We're working in the post-pandemic world right now, so we've done that. We already made all the adjustments necessary to work in an inflationary environment. Of course, we had plans for that. We didn't think we'd have to dust them off quite so quickly, but we did. So, uh, you know, an organization that's got good leadership skills and good leaders, uh, good plans, good resilience, good partners, uh, good capabilities, good connection with a customer base can respond to those things really quite dynamically, and should be able to respond to those things really quite dynamically. Terrified by climate, terrified by AI. Those are the things that are impacting businesses now, or and will impact businesses in the future. Climate, frankly, because we know it. AI, because we don't. Uh, and we don't know what's going to come out of that box. And it's extremely scary that the smartest people in the world are busy in that box and they don't even know what's gonna come out of it. So (laughs) for the rest of us, there's something of concern. On climate, however, we do know what's gonna happen. We are in charge of of the future to some extent. Uh, We can certainly influence it. And for a lot of businesses, including our own, it's a substantial threat, but it's also a significant opportunity because the entire global economy is going to shift to a post-carbon world and that's going to have an effect on a vast majority of the businesses that operate today some you know catastrophic consequences for businesses that cannot adapt uh, and some you know amazingly positive consequences for businesses that do adapt so making sure that we're in a situation of it or that you know enterprises are in a situation that they understand that that they're engaged in that that they are changing their organisations as they need to that they're listening to their customers and making sure they understand how their customers businesses are going to change certainly for us as a largely b2b uh, kind of enterprise that's incredibly important and then supporting challenging and and influencing that customer change and making sure that we can take market share through that journey and to do that if i look you know kind of back towards this community having partners one of our significant partners is represented by someone up on this stage I won't say who but we have a relationship that absolutely focuses on outcomes that absolutely at its core is not about you know a new widget or a new chatbot or a new little piece of technology that's not the innovation that we're after it was a transformative relationship it was a cultural relationship one about cultural alignment and one about changing the customer experience that we can give in partnership with with, with another organisation. So so sort of linked to some of those outcomes and right. some, of those, some of those sort of cycles of buying behaviours that Phil was referencing earlier. Um, you know, I think that, that that partnering approach and that community is going to be really, really important as we head into the next couple of big areas of challenge.
0: Interesting. So you see partnerships as the future?
5: I mean, partnerships is part of the current reality. Yeah. The, the issue is how you can leverage them. Whether or not we change the name of the procurement professional to a, I can't remember what it was. It was a partner experience, whatever. Partner experience you know, officer. Yeah. But you know, if I look at my if I look at my head of procurement, um, she's also one of my biggest sustainability champions because she's been driving she's been driving sustainability initiatives all the way through procurement for the last five years. And so if someone's just turning up now and going, oh, I really need to think about. You know, my supply chain. You know, in in a new and broader way. um, Quite late to that game. So, you know, although we haven't got all of the name changes that were on the board, that kind of leadership role challenge. I mean, the other bit of my role, when I'm not, you know, hugging trees, is and saving the planet in my spare time is customer experience. I I run the customer office at Zurich, so we have all the customer sentiment analysis, our tone of voice to customers. Uh, all of our complaints management kind of comes through, comes through me as, as well as sustainability. So, you know, the really different executive roles emerging to, to get the right balance of what are your customers thinking, who's looking at those things, can, can you, have you got management roles that can challenge the other management roles that you have, the guys that are running the p who's challenging them, who's making sure the customer experience is right. What if they're losing sight of customer outcomes? Yeah. So there's a lot of change, I think, happening in the way organisations are being yeah. built.
0: But is it about developing CEO as the driver culture of the company and saying, we want to be more client-centric because we're not nice enough to our clients. We're screwing up. We need to be closer to our clients. Then that surely is a, is a culture that you want to instill across all your leaders in the business. So how do you get everybody thinking client-centricity? To get everyone thinking employee centricity, isn't this? I mean, in our organization,
5: I, I've seen it in other organizations, I think it's broadly similar. It's all about purpose. Yeah. You know, I mean, <coughs> our, our industry is kind of a, a regularly used as a joke who on earth would go there to die? Um, but uh, the answer is me uh, and a few people like me. But, but the reality is, it's an incredibly purposeful industry, insurance. And the people that work in it um, take that purpose extremely seriously. Our our job is to support individual customers, corporations, and businesses in their times of most need. And we're not remotely cynical about that commitment. Uh, And so there is a strong purpose. Now that's not enough for all of our employees, it's enough for some of them, it's not enough for all of our employees. They want to know that we're also committed to planet-positive outcomes, social outcomes, et cetera, and other things. and building that engagement um you know is something that's relatively easy to do when you're recruiting particularly younger people into into large enterprises i think the thing that would be worth recognizing is that that's also an important selection criteria in in partners
0: brilliant so let's flip forward here i'm going to flip flip to uh, the next polling question if we can have it come up get onto your slido slido and type in your code and then we'll uh, ask a question around uh, how do we how do we view the state of the economy is it business as usual is it challenging and you're nervous it's very challenging you're very nervous are you bullish you think everybody's just overreacting or are we all X X X X x. x? <laughs> This. Yeah. He knows about
7: the fire
0: alarm. <laughs> exactly. Very challenging, very nervous. None it's quite good. Above. None <laughs> of the <Yeah>. above. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's challenging and I'm nervous. It's qua, it's the, so I think it's nervous but not very nervous. But there's quite a few very nervous as well. But only only one person, oh, so two people here think we're completely we're doomed. <laughs> there we go. Good, thank you for that. Uh, so let's get into I think uh, the next level of this conversation, which is um, how, how is this current climate impacting, mm-hmm. you know, investments in emerging tech and innovation? I mean, we've come through. To gravy train years in the tech and services industry, where people were ploughing money into cloud migrations, galore, um, lots of software being acquired, that sort of thing, to a big pullback as we've seen, in the last, um, you know, in the last couple of uh, years or last couple of months, it's been quite an alarming shift. So maybe Rohan, do you want to do you want to kick this off with uh, what are your what are you seeing, in particularly from your clients, in terms of their investments in tech?
1: Um, I think our vantage point is really influenced by what we do and the kind of outcomes and value we produce. Uh, You know, from our vantage point, um, we haven't seen anything really change. If anything, we actually see more acceleration now. Our ability to, or not even ability, our actual realization of new customers has never been faster than it has in, particularly in the last four months. Oh, wow. um, Again, that may only be specific or endemic to what we do. Uh, I, I, I don't know the broader perspective.
0: Is that because you feel you have a product that helps them reorganize
1: how they work, or? <coughs> For example, yes. No. <laughs> uh, it helps them think about efficiency. Right. It also helps um, our customers think about things like, and essentially, it's reflecting some set of priorities. You know, I'll, I'll perhaps give one example. Um, very large uh, you know, investment bank that we work with um, decided to cull a whole bunch of vendors in this environment. Um, um, but we have actually been beneficiaries of that process because the way we were given an explanation was our highest priority is either top line or bottom line, and this is how you fit into our priorities. Um, and so, as long as we're able to do something like that, uh, we stay relevant. That's
0: interesting. So, we shared some data from our pulse on emerging tech adoption, and you can see something like Metaverse, right, has very high adoption, but from a very, very low base of companies. Whereas, you move <coughs> to the right and you've got a high base of companies, um, uh, but you've got a but fairly slow growth of things like process automation IoT, low code, Seems to be emerging as the uh, fastest growth, fastest scaled area very true. in the industry. Very true.
2: Yeah. So we're seeing it a little differently, Phil. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty certain that both Tiger and Radha would, you know, probably feel the same as well. But we're seeing that, you know, a lot of companies you know, because of the uncertainty in the ecosystem outside now, are probably moving towards much more short-term gain projects. You know, so they're focusing much more on cost, probably more on agility, business resilience, as opposed to investing in longer-term ROI kind of tech projects. Uh, I would also therefore say that, you know, for the IT services players, I mean, we are not in that space uh, generally, but the discretionary projects probably are now on the you know back burner, but again I think the smart companies are not letting uh, go of the opportunity to keep investing a little bit in, in, in innovation and R&D, right? So we are actually seeing, for example, like we just bought a company a few months ago, which is essentially in low code and no code, yeah. right? And we are seeing therefore the way of interacting with clients is is dramatically changing, and we are actually seeing significant business momentum, Mm -hmm. you know, but one thing I must tell you, end of the day, we are here not to talk to our clients about technology and automation and blah, blah, blah. We are here to actually work with clients and help them drive outcomes for them, right? And those outcomes would be around, you know, what they want to get done with their end customers, what they want to get done internally, what they want to get done, in terms of impact to various stakeholders and things like that. And I think what they look to do is to actually have a partner with them who's investing in all of these kind of things, helping them focus externally and enabling uh, the partner to be an extension of their enterprise. But today I would say the focus is going to be much more on short term, but the smart companies will continue to focus on investing a little bit in innovation because you know, there's a interesting study that we did. Also, we found that companies that you know have kept investing in you know R&D and innovation, even in a downturn, they outperform the market by about 10%. But when the market comes back, they're outperforming at least 30%. Yeah.
4: I would agree. I would say, for my expectations, when, when when we're working with our partners, I think that there was a moment that you need a solution. You always need solutions but they need to be able to deliver relatively quickly at the moment. Uh, There isn't the expectation that we're going to start something that might deliver in two or three years. I think we'll be more looking to start small things that give immediate returns, whether it's to our client experience or employee engagement. Because I think one of the things we hear more and more of coming back to the talent question is also that people are unhappy with the tooling that they've got because it doesn't work. Because I think coming back to your point, there's a huge gap between the expectation. We're producing more clever, well-qualified people every day now than we ever did before. But we don't necessarily welcome them them into the workforce with jobs or tasks organized in a way that they feel they can bring something to it. So again, we're continually looking for ways not just to automate, but to make that journey easier for people joining us. Right. And then also then balancing that against the older skilled workers that they may have less willingness to adopt to technology, mm-hmm. but it's even more important for them to understand how we do that. So I think in looking at what technology companies we're looking to partner with or the ideas that we're looking for, it is something that delivers quickly right. for our, either our customers' challenges or employee engagement. So
0: none of these five-year SAP we, uh, we looked at <laughs> what
3: clients were doing with digital mm-hmm. technologies back in January. And what we found was that uh, 65% were had a very short-term view on digital investments. Uh, in fact, about in January, about uh, 30% of those uh, were sweating the assets. They were driving their existing technologies because they were. A lot of them were in a desperate situation. They were uh, trying to maintain cash flow, retain their customers, cut costs. Then. Uh, uh, there was another percentage that were under, using the technologies to underpin today's business. They were investing in digital investments, uh, in digital technologies, but it was for particularly short-term uh, reasons, depending upon the objectives that they were that were, that were driving them. Um, so, typically, for digital technologies, you you're either d- driven by a customer experience requirement, an operational efficiency, moving to an operational effectiveness one. Or developing new products services or even new business models and and also I think uh, an employee experience as well which is very often neglected but um, those those were um, underpinning today's business with their investments but then there are more long-term companies and about um, uh, 20% of those are delaying the digital strategy they're spending the money but they're spreading it over a a longer period I think the next nine months is a bit of a semi paralysis for a lot of people right despite the talk of you know more money going into this and and um, they're also spending more money on short-term survival and then there is this glorious bunch of digital leaders it's between 15 and 24 percent depending upon sector that really have an adaptive digital strategy or I've got a very long-term focus and are building resilience for the next time they run into trouble. Right. So um, it's a very mixed picture, and I'm sure all the, v- the vendors represented here will recognise what
0: I'm saying. <laughs> that, okay? So Tiger.
6: So the earlier question. I keep going back to earlier question. <laughs> the earlier question, I in my mind, should have had a not, none of the above as one of the answers because I thought, to me, uh, the world we are in is incredibly challenging, but incredibly exciting. Um, I've been in this industry for 25 years. Uh, I've never seen the amount of change that our clients are thinking through. All enterprises across the globe, irrespective of (laughs) industry. So what does that mean? It means, number one, uh, the the phrase that you had, dichotomy, is something that we are seeing a lot. We're seeing a gravitation to two ends of a dumbbell. Almost every enterprise is saying I need a dramatically uh, improved cash flow and cost equation, and I'm going to attack it wholeheartedly. These are organizations, some of whom I have never, ever had partners. I'm talking about global 500 companies who've never had partners in their entire history, all of a sudden standing up and saying, I need partners. I need to take cost out immediately. But the same enterprise is also saying, when I do that, I'm going to take a bunch of that money and invest and protect some of my long-term investments that I need to do to transform using digital technologies. Because if I don't, then to borrow, I think of your phrase, you're toast. No. Uh, I mean, we're talking about toast and you're dead and all of that yes. in this panel, but.
2: <laughs> Burnt toast.
6: Yeah, so, so I think one, there is a gravitational pull in two directions. Um, number two, there are lots of new organizations jumping in who have never jumped in before. So how could I be nervous? It's, it's the most exciting time. And the last one is I'm gonna be a naysayer on this panel. I guess I'm gonna be a naysayer and many other similar people in the world. I actually think generative AI and large language models and AI is incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, should we be scared? Yes, every technology, you should be scared because it can be misused. Every technology has incredible value. Nuclear fission and nuclear fusion how exciting and how dramatically disastrous and tragic it was. So, same with AI. Uh, We'll end up throwing the baby with the bathwater if we say that, oh my god, AI is scary. The use of AI is very scary. At the same time, the use of AI can bring four billion people up from not being able to get educated, not being able to access healthcare. That's what AI is gonna do. That has to be exciting. So our job is to figure out the right way to use that AI, govern it the right way, et cetera, et cetera, um, I, I believe there's a problem in, in, in the world where some really big thinkers, uh, Elon Musk for example, thinks that AI is going to destroy the world. Yeah. Now, I, I guess you need some people like that, so that can motivate others to jump on to trying to solve that problem. There's a problem.
0: That's getting big news in the U.S. in particular now. Yeah, someone's AI. <laughs> so as you can properties. see, I'm very
6: passionate in the opposite yeah. direction. <laughs> so sort
0: of, someone's AI proposition. You know, i be with you
4: in that. <laughs> I think it is our job to figure out how we. It's our job. For, yeah. For yeah. yeah. It'll yeah. be
6: tragic if we don't.
1: Yeah. Sorry, but Tiger, uh, I, think I know I, I took off in the opposite direction. But uh, no, no, no. It's not. Your point is very valid, but it is scary because I think there are very real, tangible, medium to short-term concerns on job loss and. I think that's a very legitimate thing to worry yeah, about. Yeah, I agree. Right? But, but because no, it. because when we had RPA and all these things these were not job loss things. These were all basic scripts. But now we're talking about a machine being able to it doesn't reason, but it does correlation in a way that it turns out most of our jobs actually have a lot of correlation. And I think that what it does to a labor force is a very real concern. No, so I'm not I'm not
6: saying no. Yeah. Uh, but I don't use the word scary. I would use the word okay, there's a problem, let's sit down and solve it because I don't think any of us or actually, anyone can prevent that from happening, Yes. not. So then, I always try to solve problems that I can do something about, rather than trying to say, "Oh my God, what do I do?" Uh, it it shouldn't be happening. Okay, so what are you going to do? It's going to happen. So let's try and solve it. And I believe I agree. I think the reskilling problem is a is the problem of the world. That I agree.
2: And I, I would actually, you know, agree with uh, Tiger. For us, these these are all opportunities. These are not, uh, you know, threats. You've got to learn it. You got to make it part of your business model and let's face it, you know, most of us actually are focused very heavily on business domains, right? And then around that, we do so many other things where technology and all becomes important and, you know, with, you know, we have been through so many paradigms of change. You know, we went through the Y2K model earlier. We went through Brexit. Everyone said our business would be killed. We went through you know, the pandemic and we've actually come out much better. And now we've got AI, which we are leveraging as a tool to deliver better to our customers. Because one of the things I also realize is that, you know, these technologies and these scripts and these algorithms cannot replace human beings from a, you know, you can't really outsource morality, you know, fairness, uh, empathy, you know, things like that, which actually need, you know, human uh, input and insight. So. From our point of view, you you know, we'll have to uh, agree to disagree with Rohan for some time. (laughs) There will be some amount of job losses, but you know what? We are not here to take care of job losses. That's for the politicians to worry about. Our job is to take care of our companies and make sure that our clients do well. This is not for this panel,
1: but I think you have too much faith in human beings. (laughs) And (laughs) And politicians.
6: (laughs) Right. That's the second one is scary.
4: No,
7: but I think the human being no, uh, is interesting. The, I remember a conversation. I remember a conversation with Rohan as early as 2013, and I gave him this example of an uh, two say footwear salesman on a flight to Africa, yes. and uh, both of them land up there. One looks at, oh my God, there's nobody who wears footwear here, takes the flight back home, and the other one stays back to say, hey, there's a great market and an opportunity to make people better wearing footwear. So, I think using AI responsibly, amplifying human potential, putting the ring, uh, the ring fences around it in the right way and providing leadership with context. I think I still feel domain expertise and, and a context-specific understanding of interpretation of AI decisions to help make better decisions would be a role. Yes. Would it need reskilling the current talent? It absolutely would. Would there be a lot of boring jobs go away? Absolutely it would. Would it amplify human potential? It would. But if you treat it as a threat, then you sort of worry about, hey, it's going to substitute me. It's going to kill me in the long term. Anyway, all of us are dead. But I, I think it's that balance. We all need to find.
2: Yeah. In fact, you know uh, you know the world economic forum not right on top there as hfs obviously but if you see their latest pr- uh, prediction it says that technology may take out 85 million jobs but this same technology all of this will create 97 million new jobs as well yeah. so you know Let's. Uh, we'll have to now uh, wait and see how the you know jury actually pans out. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking for ten years plus about
0: automation and AI taking away jobs. Right now, we have record low unemployment, particularly in low income jobs, which are the ones <coughs> that technically should be more easily automated. Yin so yang. I'd, I'd, <laughs> yeah, <true>. the best, <laughs> the best
3: <laughs> estimate I know of right. job loss by two thousand thirty is that the, 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 all this automation, uh, etc., will will. Uh, lose 18 percent of the global workforce but you will create 17 percent. So the net job loss, it's the issue, we will discuss this afternoon, but the issue is dramatic skill shifts, not net job loss. It's people who didn't upskill themselves. And and the
5: issue is navigating the skill transfer, so I mean we we had a program when I was COO putting in automation software across the business and apart from five minutes of apprehension at the outset of that program. If you ask anybody in the company today, they would say, what's the main thing that that achieved? And you'll get stories of people who moved from that part of the business, which was an area in decline and where they were wondering what they were going to do with their careers, to so are now automation coders and automation experts and think that they've got not only life inside our company, but potential new skills to take outside of the open market. So a massive reskilling exercise and hugely positive in the way that everybody's looked at it because it reskilled and retrained a bunch of people that were concerned about where their skills were taken. So, you know, we'll solve that bit of it, yeah, I'm
0: sure. We can all become so, prompt engineers.
5: So, yeah, Phil, okay. there,
1: there's something, there's a very important original thought, I think, before anybody else you've had, and ev- that's when I started to read you very seriously, um, uh, many years ago, uh, and that is, I think you're the first person to call out the hype around automation. It's a word that's, it's like love and innovation and automation. They're all abused and overused. Um, and Phil wrote you know, back when this whole RPA thing took off and so on, uh, you, you kind of really disabused the notion and said, OK, everybody relax. There are a set of things that it can probably do, but there are many things it can't do well. And therefore, there's far too much hype around it. And so the current wave of where we are, <coughs> I think, will bring to fruition exactly what you said and predicted many years ago. Um, because I was new to the industry and I said, hey, who's this Phil's first guy? He's actually saying the exact thing that all of us computer scientists believe. And, and, and the reason this is important is, if I were an RPA company, I'd be very scared right now. And the reason is, all of what you've seen in ChatGPT is just, it's telling you some text. What did, what's already cooking in the lab, what you'll soon see. In fact, one of the people who published, the, one of the co-authors of the paper from Google, the Transformers paper in 2017, that's what really set off this whole thing right now. Uh, Here's a startup and their demo and their whole, their entire startup's purpose is you go and say, I want to fill this insurance form and do this and this. You just say it. And they've connected GPT to now taking action. And that's the next stage, actuation. Actuation tied to human natural language understanding intent and now you straight away, there's no RPA. There's no automation between. This is it. It's end-to-end. And there's no programming here. You just say what you want to do. Yeah. We haven't seen that come out no. just yet. And when that comes out, Phil, I believe what you said many years ago will be complete.
0: That's right. We're, we're trialing it with research testing and searching right now. So with our own research, because we feel, when well, I can't even find stuff on my own website. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Okay. So um, I do want to... Uh, touch upon this, I know you touched upon John's sustainability, because you've taken on this new role in uh, Zurich. Um, you know, what's, what's going to happen to st- sustainability <coughs> in Mayhem? We, we have a Chief Sustainability Officer here, Josh. He's in the room there, he's at the back waving. He's dressed like a sustainability officer as well. Um, and, um, you know, he, he came out and said one thing, is he's kind of given up on consumers. And he's given up on politicians (laughs) (laughs) but our last vestiges of hope is actually our businesses our businesses can actually drive the example here on driving more sustainable behavior
5: Um, yeah fortunately our politicians haven't given up on our businesses so they're going to try and use us to beat the rest of you into submission (laughs) Um, so banks and insurance companies have an important role to play according to the government because we can stop things happening or we can support them happening so um, It kind of depends what you mean by sustainability as well. If you're talking about sustainability in climate terms, then it's relatively narrow. If you're talking about it in (coughs) wider societal terms, which happens to be the way we do, um, then I think the impact you can have is is even more substantial. Um, But the reality is that businesses, particularly those in regulated environments like ours, are being driven down a a path, no question about it, uh, towards uh, sustainable outcomes. We need to... Uh, reduce the carbon intensity in our underwritten portfolio. That means the real world economy has to shift because uh, we can't do it without all our customers shifting, uh, and we have to do it in our investment portfolio as well, alongside all, all the banks and other asset owners. So it's it's an extremely material and large focus. Hence, roles like mine are suddenly you know uh, magically coming into being, uh, and you know largely you didn't have it on the board, but. My unofficial job title is chief cat herder because effectively I just organize the activity that's happening right across the enterprise uh, and try and channel it into some sort of you know, organized progress that we can track and report on and challenge ourselves around. So that's happening in operational functions. It's happening in underwriting functions. It's happening in investment teams. it's happening in, um, It's happening within facilities management, within supply partnership arrangements and procurement right across the enterprise. Uh, and is increasingly an activity that no organization can avoid. I I would expect most organizations that you work in to have either someone in a role like this or someone with a different title uh, trying to organize and and collate activity across across your enterprises as well. And I don't think there's a part uh, of the enterprise that this stuff won't touch in the next 20 or 30 years. I do think it's a massive opportunity, though, rather than a threat.
0: So so why is it that I have to spend? I'm threatened with 4% of my revenues um, being taken away if I'm in breach of ISO 27001 and SOC 2 compliance with my security. But I don't get... It's totally fine for me to screw up the environment, but I can't screw up my data.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it won't be totally okay for you to screw up your environment because your events won't be insured if you don't offer us or your insurer uh, a reasonable transition plan about how you're journeying to net zero as an organisation. Right. So that's the kind of influence that we will have is that we will effectively be working with our customers in a very collaborative way, but effectively we'll be tasked with withdrawing capacity from the market for participants who don't have a meaningful and material transition plan that they can evidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then people's and that's choice how of,
5: That's how it'll happen.
0: But then people's choice of partners as well is going to be, do you share our common desire to be sustainable think that way good okay the interest of time I think we're going to jump to my last question which is if you get one wish of how to change this industry for the better you can do one thing if you're anointed the emperor of technology services outsourcing whatever what would that one wish be maybe I'll start with you Rohan Murti at the end
1: no, let's start from the other end. I just need a minute to think.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest. Okay. Rather
1: than.
0: Rather, your wish.
7: Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, we have software, hardware, I would call it humanware. This is a phenomenal opportunity for us in the industry and in enterprises to create humanware. People who can use digital in ways which can amplify the value, amplify their own potential, making themselves the best version of themselves, bringing context, domain, data, empathy, and using digital, putting digital first at the center of it.
0: Okay, Uh, Tanya?
7: I
6: think since we talk so much about generative AI and large language models, I do believe that we are finally entering a world where the importance of culture, relationships, uh, trust, is gonna rise to the top of the house in everything. I mean, if everyone has generative AI, if it's democratized to the extent that all of us are gonna be able to use it, then who's gonna win? As an individual, as a team, as a company, as a country, it's gonna be two two kinds of people. One who actually uh, knows what questions to ask, if you don't know what questions to ask, I don't care what GPT you have. It's not gonna give you a good answer. So you better know what questions to ask. And therefore, you need to know the domain. You need to know what problem you're solving, et cetera, and what action you're gonna take. Of course, if Rohan's technology comes true, then even the action will be taken, but you know, that's a little bit <laughs> way. Um, And the second is, do you really trust the person who's holding the machine? So I believe that the world we are in now and into the future is gonna be all about trust. And trust is built over time. Reputation, relationships. I hope all of us realize that actually that's more important than any technology. And the more the world can get there, not just in our industry, across across the globe. Unfortunately, politicians are not like that. But uh, <laughs> <a good> topic.
0: There you go. Trust. I like it.
5: Probably trust. a similar theme. I, I would say that our strongest relationships are those that are built around human-human interactions with our customers, and that's absolutely the case with our suppliers. So you know and I would encourage all our suppliers and I would encourage uh, you know anybody working in that space to be us be part of our organization you know our our best suppliers are not even considered external Uh, they're they they come up with ideas spontaneously in team meetings on a Monday just like every other department does Um, they they forecast doom and gloom just like any other human or department does they're not some external thing that comes up with a widget or a gadget or a new thing and tries to sell it to us they just see the problems that exist in our business because they're inside it and they and they respond to it in the same way as our organization does so kind of be your customers is probably what I would I would say and that's to trust that's to that's to strengthen the relationship Thank you one wish
4: Generally I believe probably we need to put humans back into the center I mean we're talking about you know in some of our language that we use in the industry about you know, we're going to take humans out, we're going to, do, you know, it's dreadful, yeah. frankly, I mean, that is, that is sometimes how we talk. When we talk about automation, we talk about AI, we forget that most of the people we need to adopt the ideas or adopt the technology or yeah. humans, they'll be impacted by them. I think the, for me, the, one of the most incredible things that came out of the pandemic era, you know, which had ups uh, in a very stressful no. time was technology's ability to keep people connected. I and mean, that was incredible. I mean, we've got tired of zoom calls etc but at the same time that sustained us all for a long period of time yeah. and I think also the other thing that was really strong that we might lose sight of now is community yeah because for c- community is a wider component that you need to think about it's not just my partner or it's not just my tribe or it's not just you know my customer but actually particularly when we're coming to think about how sustainability affects everyone, I think we have more community-based as we then think about what the impact of our actions is on multiple people. And that's our actuals as individuals and also as corporate leaders and also as people who are slightly nerdy about tech.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you 100% there. and uh, I think we were saying earlier, AI is here to help leaders and humans make better (coughs) decisions. It takes the risk away from us, but we make the decisions. Computers aren't going to make decisions anytime soon. Leslie, one, one wish?
3: Well, it goes back to the 1990s, actually, oh. which is that uh, clients build, retain management capabilities. You keep control of their technology and digital uh, destiny. And most things come from that. When, when your suppliers we've looked at hate dealing with an incompetent uh, corporation, right. essentially. And you lack direction and purpose if you don't have that retained management set of competencies to keep control of your digital future.
0: Okay. So Keshav, one res- wish that you have.
2: Yeah, Phil, I, I already you know, spoke about morality and values and empathy and you know emotional intelligence and things. I think those are the most important things that human beings must continue to invest in and understand uh, are going to be important for the future. So if there's one thing that I would want every human being on planet Earth to focus on going forward with all of this disruptive technology around. It is reinforcing values and what they stand for.
0: OK, values. like that one. And then have you uh, yes. come up with one now?
1: <laughs> actually, I, I loved what everybody yeah. said. Maybe fact, you should give us two, cross, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> the way I'd actually sum it up is there are Roughly, about 500 million people who use software machines to do work every day. All of us included, white collar workers. The world spends roughly about 15 trillion dollars on our wages. And there is no scientific basis for understanding why we don't like our work, what ails us at work, what troubles us at work, what we can do better to collaborate, to succeed. There is no science. But if you're in the manufacturing industry, there's a very detailed science for it. And so my one wish is a creation of some kind of a science to understand every day when we go to work, um, what affects us, what can be better. There are things that we don't control at work, and yet we're subjected to at work. You know How badly your process is designed, how bad your tech stack is, or whatever else, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are many things we don't control, and yet we're subjected to. I'd love for that, if I had a magic wand, for there to be a science for understanding how we all experience work, and how that can be better. And I think a lot of technology and so on can help in that. And that results in enhancing trust, or you're saying putting the community or the user at the center and so on.
0: Yeah. In this talent study I presented earlier, um, technology was the number two biggest impact on people's work experience now, mm-hmm. is how they engage with technology at work. And especially when you're remote so much of the time, how are you interacting? How are you collaborating? And, you know, we're all complaining about we're trying to. We run our company. Zoom chat is now our number one communication tool, right. and it is it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, this has been fantastic. We've gone over time a little bit, and, and I really appreciate Radha, Tiger, John, Carol, Leslie, Kashav, and Rohan. What a wonderful conversation! And look forward to the rest of the day. And thank you for coming. Thanks. Thank
7: you.